Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 21 again. John 21. Today's the fifth Sunday of Easter. Yep, we're still talking about that. For Easter Sunday alone cannot contain the importance of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, worshiping the first day of every week cannot contain the significance of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So return with me to the beach, to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, where last Sunday we met the risen Jesus having breakfast with his friends. He's not finished manifesting himself to us, showing us what his relationship to us will be now that he is risen from the dead. Let me read it. We'll pick up where we left off, verse 15, down through verse 17. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Two great truths I want us to learn from these few verses on this little incident. The first is this. Jesus restores the fallen. Jesus restores the fallen. You know, we live in a consumer society these days. That means we consume things. We use them up and discard them. It actually becomes a way of life, a kind of thinking. You, you buy something, you use it, you throw it away, and you get a new one. That's just how it works. It doesn't seem to matter anymore whether it's tableware or televisions or baby diapers or cars. They're all disposable. And I fear that we do the same thing with people. We use them until they're broken, and then we discard them. For if you think your computer's hard to fix, try fixing a broken person. It doesn't seem to matter whether we're talking about employees or friends or spouses. More and more we have become consumers, even consuming one another. That's what makes this such a profoundly beautiful passage. For here Jesus does just the opposite. Here Jesus takes his wounded, broken disciple Peter and makes him new again and sends him out to a life of productive leadership. Jesus restores the fallen. Now, in order for us to feel the weight of this passage, let's uh, remind ourselves of the background a little bit. This is about uh, Peter. Uh, we know Peter. He was one of the very first disciples called, as we noted last week, probably on this very beach on the, on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, that day he left his nets and he left his friends, he left his business and he followed Jesus. And Peter quickly rose to a position of trust with Jesus. 
When Jesus selected only 12 out of the hundreds of people that followed him, Peter was one of the 12. When, when Jesus selected three, who were kind of an inner circle among the 12, Peter was among the three. Those who were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Those who went with Jesus deep into the Garden of Gethsemane. Indeed, Peter rose to the most privileged position of all of the apostles. The leader, the spokesman for the 12. Oh, but Peter's rise was impressive. His fall was meteoric. It all took place the night that Jesus was betrayed. Peter may have gone further with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane, but he slept just as soundly as the rest when Jesus had told them to pray. When the soldiers came, Peter woke with a panic and got out his sword and took the ear off of one of the servants of the high priest. And then, uh, frightened, he ran away like the others, only to follow at some distance, just close enough to see what was happening to Jesus. When Jesus was taken in to be tried in the, in the residence of the high priest, uh, Peter uh, hung out in the courtyard. Uh, and there, while Jesus was being uh, given anything but justice inside, while he was being ruthlessly maligned, and while, he, while Jesus was being denied the most basic kind of justice out in the courtyard, his chief apostle, who had seen more and understood better than anyone else, Peter, was denying the Lord, his friend, his Messiah, whom he knew to be the Son of God, the Lord of glory. Peter was swearing with an oath, I don't know the man. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Seldom has any disciple of Jesus before or since sinned so profoundly, fallen so low, so fast. And Peter realized immediately how he had fallen. At the moment of his third denial, Jesus caught his eye across the courtyard. and The rooster crowed just like Jesus had predicted and Peter wanted to die. He went out and wept bitterly. In fact, in Matthew's account, Peter's remorse is followed immediately by the account of Judas's remorse and suicide. They seem to be related. And so throughout Jesus' trial and crucifixion, there's no sign of Peter. Now, Peter knew Jesus was alive again. He had learned about that when he went to the empty tomb and with John. He was with the others in the upper room when Jesus appeared. But there was still this unfinished business. In all Jesus' appearances, nothing has ever been said about that night of denial. Not by Jesus, not by Peter. So what do you think? Is there any hope for Peter? Should there be, after such a grave sin? Not in a throwaway world, there isn't. But Jesus restores the fallen. Our text begins after the breakfast on the beach, as Peter warms himself again around yet another fire, this time with all of the disciples there. And suddenly Jesus raises the dreaded issue. Every word he said is packed with meaning. Simon, son of John, Jesus said, 
You remember when your parents called you by your full name? It's not a good sign. Simon, son of John. This is how Jesus had addressed Peter when he first met him there on that beach. Back then, Jesus had gone on to say, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter or rock. <laughs> Those days are gone. Peter certainly proven he was no rock. So Peter may have wondered, what's Jesus going to say this time? Perhaps he would say, Simon, son of John, is this the way you treat your friends? Or perhaps he would say, Simon, son of John, you know, I warned you that you were going to prove to be a coward, and I was right. Or perhaps he's going to say, Simon, son of John, I'm now officially removing you from your apostleship. You're not worthy of such a position anymore. We would certainly understand any of those statements, wouldn't we? After all, actions have consequences. But Jesus is doing none of those things. He's simply taking Simon back to the beginning, to his calling to follow him. Jesus is restoring the fallen. So he continues, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice Jesus is not asking Peter for some settlement, some compensation that he could come up with to smooth things over. In all of this, there's never a hint of any statement that begins like this. If you will, Peter, I will forgive you if you will anything. No. For you see, Jesus' love hasn't wavered. Jesus' love has just taken him to the cross and back. And why? To pay the penalty that Peter deserves for denying him. Jesus isn't looking for Peter to somehow atone for his terrible betrayal. That atonement has been made already by Jesus. The debt is settled. It is finished. The only issue now is Peter's restoration. So Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Well, I'm not suggesting that there can be remorseless repentance. Peter has been filled with remorse for quite a while now. Nor am I suggesting that Peter's just asking about Jesus, uh, that Jesus is just asking about Peter's feelings. Peter, do you feel better now? Do you feel forgiven? Have you forgiven yourself, Peter? That kind of pop theology is nonsense. No, Jesus having made atonement for Peter's sin, Jesus having himself bore the punishment that Peter's selfish betrayal deserved, Jesus having removed the defilement that separated he and Peter, Jesus now calls for Peter's renewed commitment, his renewed devotion. Not Peter, will you promise to try harder? Not Peter, can you guarantee this will never happen again now? Not Peter, are you, are you worthy now to be my disciples? Have you learned your lesson? No, the answer to those might all be no. Jesus just asked Peter, do you love me? Jesus isn't trying to get even with Peter. He's restoring and welcoming his friend back. Well, dear people, we never outgrow such grace. We never get too sophisticated for the gospel. 
how could we ever get over the fact that the Lord of glory, the very Lord we have forsaken and betrayed, would search out a fallen, disgraced, undeserving sinner and bring him back into loving fellowship? Well, Jesus goes on. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, there's some question about what Jesus is referring to there. There are a couple of different ways we might take that. Jesus may be asking uh, with, with a sweep of the hand pointing to the, the boat and the nets and the pile of 153 fish and this whole way of life that Peter knew and say, Peter, do you love me more than all of this fishing business like you once did when you left it all and followed me? Or Jesus may have been referring to the other disciples who were there. Remember, that had been Peter's claim. Even if everyone else falls away, Lord, I never will. So now Jesus asked pointedly, Simon, son of John, do you really love me more than all the others? Either way, whatever was Jesus was referring to, he was calling Peter to humble himself and return to his first love of Jesus. Jesus was restoring this fallen, broken man. Three times Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Why three times? That's pretty simple. So one writer said, it was three times Peter denied the Lord, and it was three times that the Lord gave him a chance to reaffirm his love. Jesus knows how to restore Peter. So how did Peter answer Jesus' repeated question? Verse 15, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Verse 16, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Finally, verse 17, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. That's all. No boasting as he had done before. No comparing himself with others as he had done before. No proclaiming the great things he would do for God as he had done before. None of that, not anymore. Instead, Jesus, you know, you know, you know. Before, when Jesus had pointedly predicted his denial, Peter was quite certain the Lord did not know what he was talking about. The Lord did just not realize how much Peter really loved him. Oh, but now even when Peter is exasperated, when Jesus asked him the third time, he can only say, Lord, you know all things you know. I love you. You see, folks, Jesus, the great physician, the wonderful counselor, knows how to restore broken people. Not just a trite, I'm sorry, but not doing penance either. Instead, coming to terms with Jesus and his real forgiveness and renewal, Jesus restores our souls. We need to hear this. I know you've heard it before. We need to hear this. First, we need to hear it because we need to be restored. I suspect, I don't know, I'm not thinking of anyone, but I suspect there are people sitting here right now who have really given up on ever really being restored to right relationship with the Lord. You just learn to live with that hollow 
hopelessness. You assume your sin is too bad. You've strayed too far. It's been too long. It's just too late. My dear broken brother or sister, I'm here to tell you Jesus restores the fallen. For this he went to the cross and took our sentence of death that he might forgive and restore sinners without sacrificing his justice. The penalty is paid. God's justice is satisfied. That's the gospel. Jesus' body was given in place of his fallen people. His blood was poured out for the sins that we deserve to die for. And now he searches out broken, fallen people like you and like me and freely restores us. Do you love me? He simply asked. Not are you good enough. He knows better. He knows how bad it's really been. Do you love me? Today I call you to come running back. Humbled? Yes. Wiser? Yes. Worthy? No. Never. But trusting, resting in his mercy. Saying with Peter, you know, Lord, you know I love you. Come and see for yourself. Jesus restores the fallen. Secondly, we need to hear this because the Lord calls us to restore one another. You and I both know there are lots of churches where Peter's involvement would have been over forever. It's true. Oh, we might have allowed him to sit in the back somewhere or sit in the side room, but no leadership position, no anything for such a broken, fallen, defiled man. Well, you see, though, our only hope is in Jesus. And when it comes to our living with one another, we're not very good on this grace thing. Instead, we, we talk about grace, but we tend to live by the law. The law goes this way. Here's the behavior I expect. If you do this, you will have my favor. If you don't measure up, I'm done with you. Do you understand? That's living by the law. But we're called to live by grace. To show mercy. To grant as well as receive forgiveness and restoration. Folks, the church is the company of the forgiven. We can't forget that. Jesus restores the fallen, and so must we. Oh, but Jesus did not just say, Well, Peter, I'm glad you learned your lesson here. I'm glad to see that you're sorry for your uh, moral uh, collapse there. I, I hope you're able to feel better about yourself now. And uh, so I hope you have a nice life and 
catch lots of fish every time you're out here. Oh no, that's not what Jesus said. He said, Peter, now feed my sheep. Which brings us to our second point. Jesus has given us a sacred trust. Jesus restores the fallen, but he has now given us a sacred trust. Once again, some important background. The flock that Jesus speaks of here when he's talking about lambs and sheep, that's his people, his church. Way back in Psalm 23, we read, The Lord is my shepherd. We're the Lord's flock. And then there's a dramatic prophecy in uh, Ezekiel 34 where the Lord condemns the shepherds of Israel and talks about the day that he'll come and be the shepherd himself. And sure enough, in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. You see, the people of God are Jesus' flock. They're the ones he came to care for. They're the ones he gave his life for. They're the ones he calls so that they may know him and follow him. Jesus calls them my lambs. He calls them my sheep. It's Jesus' flock. But then, here, Jesus entrusts his flock, his church, to this fallen disgraced apostle. Here we can see how wonderfully complete Jesus' restoration of Peter really is. I found a great quote by Rita Snowden, who's quite a writer, died a few years ago. She writes, You ask me what forgiveness means? It is the wonder of being trusted again by God in the very place where I disgraced him. Being trusted again by God in the very place where I disgraced him. Make no mistake, Jesus bestowed, bestowed on Peter a sacred trust. Peter was not free to just go do what he pleased now. He was entrusted with Jesus' flock. His calling was not just to keep them busy. His concern was not just to make sure they stayed in the pen. He was not called to just keep poking them with a sharp stick to make a move out of his way. He was called to feed them and lead them. He was not the shepherd. He was just an under-shepherd privileged to serve. And Peter never seems to have forgotten this. Years later, he writes in 1 Peter 5, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as underseers, not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter knew. Peter never forgot. He had been given a sacred trust. Now you may be saying, Pastor Bert, this actually applies to you more than any of us. You're preaching to yourself here. Yes, I, I actually am. And, and I need to hear this. And I need for you to hear me hear this. For every day the whole world bombards pastors with things that they think are more important for them to do than what Jesus gave us to do. 
But folks, as much as this truth is directed toward me, it has application for you too. There is no one here who's not entrusted with the responsibility for someone's welfare. In our families, where we work, in our communities, in our circle of friends, especially in Christ's church here in the chapel. Every Christian is part of the body which is instructed to build itself up in love as every member does its part. The point is, people depend on you. And so in some sense, Jesus has bestowed on each of us a sacred trust, the care and feeding of some part of his flock. Even if it's just those two or three little children that you're raising, or even if it's just that Sunday school class of five or six kids, or even if it's just your own family that's needy, or even if it's just the two employees that you have, the care and feeding of some part of his flock. Remember, God does not restore us just to make us feel good. He rescues us from our sins that we might serve him. That's what we read in the scriptures. Psalm 51, you know the words, Create in me a clean heart, cast me not away, to restore to me the joy of your salvation. But you've got to read the next line. Then I will teach transgressors their ways, your ways. Same thing happened here with Peter in John 21. Jesus restored his broken disciple, and then he said to him, Now go feed my flock, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. God has given us a sacred trust, which applies to every one of us in some way. We all exert some influence. We all affect someone. We all are a factor in someone else's discipleship, either feeding them on God's truth and encouraging them to walk in his ways, or leading them astray and causing them to neglect the Lord. There's no such thing as an isolated Christian. That's the message of Hebrews 3. Encourage one another as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You don't have to be a pastor or an elder or a teacher to do that, to encourage one another. And a similar points made by Peter himself in 1 Peter 4, each of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in all its various forms. Jesus has entrusted to every believer the sacred trust of caring for his flock. This morning God's word has great news for us. Great news for weary souls. For unlike so many people in our day, Jesus does not just dispose of broken people. Jesus restores the fallen. He restored the apostle Peter, who publicly denied him and disgraced him. And he will restore you too. But part of his rehabilitation plan is to launch reclaimed sinners into his service. That's what he did with Peter. 
And that's what he intends to do with you. Jesus bestows on us a sacred trust, the care of those who belong to him, his lambs, his sheep, his flock. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we never tire of hearing of your grace. Oh, Lord, we never get over needing your grace. We're never so uh, accomplished in our Christian walk that we don't fall and embarrass ourselves and worse, Lord, embarrass and defame you. Thank you that your grace and faithfulness is new to us every day and that it never goes away, that you do not change. So restore us again this day. But then, Lord, may we not buy into the attitude that it's all just about us feeling good, but may we see that you have restored us to serve you and grant that we might understand what that means in our particular situation, that we might be faithful, ministering the grace we've received from you to others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.